Welcome back to Rise. Today we're going to continue Craig Gould's incredible story. In this episode, we join Craig in the aftermath of an emotional roller coaster. After grappling with the devastating news of his impending death, they encounter a specialist who offers them something invaluable hope. There he says nothing for about 10 minutes. I don't know if you've ever had 10 minutes silence, but me and Chrissy are just looking at each other going, we're, we're, we're in an awful state anyway. He looks up eventually. He took, grabs my wrist and goes, I can fix you. We just were stunned and went, wow, okay, brilliant, thank you. And we realised that we'd gone out the door then of the office and go, what do we do next? We hadn't asked that question. We were just too shocked. So then Christine quickly knocked on the door and went back in and said, sorry, what do we do now? I said, look at the state of him. You can't leave him like this. And Prof goes, oh, yeah, he's a bit of a mess, isn't he? We'll get him admitted now. And I think they kept me in and they started treatment instantly. And after five days, there was a huge improvement. Obviously, they treated the pneumonia. They had to lift me up in the bed to eat and all sorts of things because I was just in so much agony. I got through that. <clears throat> then I got home and they started putting me on the treatments, the very first treatment, chemo. Can I, can I ask a question? So you, you've gone from literally death's door to somewhat of a miraculous reprieve, and it's quite, it's quite emotional even listening to this. One thing you've not mentioned yet is that you've got two sons. How old were your sons when you got the diagnosis in 2012? So Patrick would be four and William would be six. So that is some burden with a four-year-old and a six-year-old. And at that point, you didn't tell them? Didn't tell them. Never. No. Even when you thought you were going to die? No. Why didn't you tell them? I don't think they would fully understand at that age. I certainly did not want them to live with this worry. They were old enough, in my opinion. Now, I know that goes against the grain of all the medical advice I've been told. Uh, I've been told off by many different nurses and physicians over the years for not telling my kids. But no, I didn't tell them. They just, I used to travel a lot with work anyway. We just told them I'd gone away of work. And did they notice anything was going on? Yeah, they're not daft, particularly when I got back home and on bedridden. <laughs> so what I would do is in the mornings I would get up as if I'm going to work and they're going to school. When they went to school, I'd go back to bed. And then I'd get up just before they get back from school and start doing dinners and stuff like that, like I'd been away at work all day. Uh, and that's how we got through. I mean, they're young. They, they know something's not right. They're not daft. They don't want to know too much as long as you look like you're functioning that's all they need to know friends and family you were quite open to it oh, yeah. absolutely and what was their response oh we have a whole chapter on people's responses to me what response did you get where you thought actually that's really helpful and you felt it supported and what responses did you get where you thought oh god please no the majority of the responses i get are that head tipped onto the side sad eyes are you all right? Type response. 
winds me up. Why does it wind you up so much then? It's a stupid question. You don't understand there's nothing else they can say. I want to live normally. I don't want anyone's sympathy. I don't want anyone's. I don't want to be a charity case. I am what I am. I'm working. I'm doing my bits. And, and I think this is the key to everything that I've done with it. This is my problem. It's not yours. Uh, and I think that's a lot of what has got me through as long as I can. I've accepted it's mine very early. It's not. It's not someone else's fault. It's, no, this is my problem. It's not yours. Get on with it. So they were the unhelpful reactions. And just quickly remind me, how old were you in 2012? 42. So you're a young man. What type of reactions do you think were helpful in terms of your friends and family and, and close people? It was just the practical things. Just let's get on, let's do this. You probably can't drive right now. I'll give you a lift down here or we'll go to the pub. I'll, make, I'll pick you up. We'll go to a few beers. Just things that are normal, but helpful. It's really weird because the mental side is huge. Because once you're told you're going to die, it takes you a long time to get your head around that. So you've got ways of dealing with it. One is avoidance. You think, nah, that's bullshit. That ain't happening. Then you realise you've got so sick, you're in hospital, nearly dead. You think, oh, they might have a point. Uh, then you get a bit stronger and you probably get an angry stage. That's not too far away from me anyway. Particularly once you start putting steroids into the mix, that doesn't help. And then it's just, okay, let's be practical about this. I'm a practical person. Let's, what can we do to help? Do you need me to take you here? Do you need the shopping doing? Can we get this? Can we buy you that? Can we do something to help you? Rather than just the pat on the head, sympathy look. I can categorise people in three categories, and this is over the years, not just early days. You've got the sympathy. Then you've got the death chasers, and then you've got the helpful ones. In the middle, there's a small group of people who just love seeing death. They want to come and see someone dying. <clears throat> and you're like, all right, I'm not a fucking monkey in a cage. So you've got people who you feel do that to you? Oh, my God. You'd be amazed how many people want to come and see a bit of death. You said that you experienced anger. You've said to me and friends in the past that you've occasionally visited dark places. Yeah. Tell me about the anger in the dark places and then tell me how you channeled that to make something positive out of it. When I say dark places, people suffering with this kind of illness or any kind of terminal illness, at some stage they're going to hit a part in their life where their head's going to have stuff, I'm gone, I'm dead, I can't be bothered anymore. Usually it's associated with pain or treatment or, a for me, it was all during a treatment or a drug. And I thought I was gone. I remember on two, maybe three occasions, I'd been too frightened to go to sleep at night because I didn't think I'd wake up. I don't know other people have experienced that. That's the thing when you're in a dark room in a hospital on your own. No one's around, nurses, night shift is on, and you're all alone. And you think, I'm not going to wake up. And at that point... You've got to do something because I'm reading a book doesn't work. And at that, that point, that's when I allow myself to get angry. I've always got an underlying, and I, I, call, I call it energy. I use it as a positive. It's not destructive because sometimes you just have to get angry to get through. So I'm very quiet. I don't talk. I even do it in the house at home sometimes if I'm struggling. I won't say anything to anyone because it's not their problem. It's mine. It's mine to deal with. And I'll be fucking angry. 
and I'm using that kind of energy to me gets me through. I, I get through them dark times, uh, and it's hard. It's not easy. It's not good. I'm sure I'm not pleasant to be around. That, that's a side effect that I have to accept. Do you, have you felt like giving up about it, stopping fighting? Have you ever felt, actually, I've had enough? No. I never believe in giving in. Not even close? I, I may say, this is not worth it. But in reality, that's never how I feel. Because I'm stubborn. And I've got two boys. I will never show them weakness. I will never let them see that their dads give up. Ever. Doesn't matter if it kills me in the process. I will never let them see that I give up. Because I don't want them to have that view of life. Because I don't believe having cancer stops you doing anything. Except my football career, obviously. And they need to know they can still achieve anything, no matter what. And that's not a big life statement. That's just what I want them to see from me. You're now fixed up a little bit. They've, made, they've done a few bits and pieces. Then comes the long battle with chemotherapy. Are there any stories from your chemotherapy sessions that would stand out to you? There's a few. I have to be careful how I say this because everyone's different. So I'm in there to do a job and have my chemo and get the hell out. <laughs> I always found chemo fine. I, didn't, I, I was lucky I didn't suffer the real sicknesses and illness that other people do. Um, I find chemo sweets, and I respect everyone in them, but I'm not there to chat. I'm not, I'm not there to talk about how sick I am or how long I've had. I, I don't care. Sorry, mate. I'm not interested in talking to you about your diagnosis. I don't mean to be rude. I'm just not. I've got my own diagnosis. I'm doing a bit of work. I'm not, I'm, I have held Teams meetings from my chemo suite. <laughs> Do you change the background? <laughs> the beep is a bit annoying, I have to say. <laughs> And at, what, at one point, again, it's not funny, I was doing a Teams meeting, my, my sales teams had a chemo suite, and um, unfortunately the crash team got called. And they're, they're like, what the hell is going on now? Because obviously when the crash happens, all the, all the guys, they just drop everything and run to the area where they're needed. And quite like this, the noise and the alarms and all the chaos that goes on with that, they're just like, what's going on there? Sorry, they better pause this one now. Someone's in a lot of trouble. And they're just like, oh, okay. <laughs> and that's it, shut it down. You managed to put chemo as part of your routine. And I know you say the chemo didn't bother you that much, but I remember you actually at the time of your chemo getting both low in mood and actually feeling quite wiped out in terms of energy. Tell me about how you managed to incorporate that whilst still working and still being a dad and still being a husband, etc. Again, that's the thing where you better win a lot. I told everyone I was fine. So you weren't? No, of course not. You're not fine. No one's going to change it. It doesn't matter. I remember the nurse has got slightly annoyed with me. I turned up one morning. I had a meeting in the States the day before. and I, I got a big eight-hour session of chemo lined up because uh, obviously over the years I've had many different types of chemo. So I went, fuck it, I did the meeting. I had a few beers afterwards, got the overnight flight back from Nashville and went from the airport straight to the chemo strip with my bags and everything. And they're just like, what on earth are you doing? I'm a bit blurry-eyed, obviously. Been up all night and had a few glasses of wine. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that was the only time they got annoyed at me. And I just said, look, I had a job to do. 
I just want to be ridiculous and then I bonk me down. I don't think they were very gentle putting the cannula in that time. Other than that, I would go to work. I would fit work around the chemo. Because my job a lot of time was taking clients out and entertaining and dinners, etc. Uh, I would go and take, I would, I would take uh, people out to dinner and, and lunches and stuff with a cannula in my arm under my shirt that people didn't even know about. Quite often I'd have a cannula hidden under my sleeves. And, uh, and was there a time where life returned to some degree of normality for you? Yeah, it's a swings and roundabouts. Because the disease isn't curable as yet, so I have some treatment. They get on top of it again. And it's usually 18 months, two years before the disease finds its way around that treatment. But eventually the disease finds its way around. We start getting niggles again. We start getting bits of pain. But in that 18 months, generally operating all right. Obviously, you've got to go and have the chemos every, every whatever time it is. A lot of the time, early days, it was tablet form anyway. And I didn't have to go to the hospital for it. I just did it at home. And you just try and get through and get on with it. Steroids were hard. Steroids caused more issues for me than anything at, at, at times due to the lack of sleep and the what it does to you and the increase in weight, the weight gain you get with it. I think I had 30 tablets of steroids to take every week. And I'd tell the guys, look, I take these on a Sunday. They can say I can take it over Sunday, one, two days. I, don't, I do it all in one day, get it out of the way. Remember, I ain't good on Mondays. Don't be asking me anything that's going to alarm me because I'm going to tell you to go. And so the guys knew that. They knew Mondays wasn't the day to be asking any questions for something they wanted. Would you say that you maintained your confidence throughout that whole time? Confidence for me had a direct correlation with my strength. Now it's, confidence is a mental thing, but for me, if I felt weak, my confidence was low, physically weak. Not, not mentally, but if my body and my physical strength went, that's what hurt me and get knocked my confidence. At work, I knew exactly what I was talking about. I wasn't stretched in that capacity. At home, I'm confident in what I'm doing. My kids are still very young. Christine has been a supporter, so we're not having any problems there. So no, I didn't have any confidence issues. Did people stop giving you pity? Yeah, on the whole, you still get the odd slanty head. <laughs> as if they're going to pat you on the head and go, oh, isn't he all right? You're going through your first round of chemo, uh, and then you're ready for your first bone marrow uh, transfusion. Is that as fun as it sounds? <laughs> no. There's lots of things leading up to it. You're in isolation for three weeks, so you're away from your family, friends, only nurses. I suppose the lead-up is tough. You have to harvest your stem cells. That takes a bit of time. So the choice of the stem cells is well, your own stem cells, or you need to find a damn near perfect match. So we got my own. We harvested it, which was an interesting thing. It's like dialysis. You sit on your machine for a few hours. They get the stem cells. They basically treat them with some kind of radiation and they try and reprogram them to act normally. When they do that, they take it away, but to do that, they've got to turn you into a shell. So when that happens, they take you into the hospital. You're going to be there for three weeks, so bring you everything you need as much as you can. So I had pictures of the family. I, I had iPads so I could video talk and all that kind of stuff set up. A laptop so I could do a bit of work, all that kind of thing. And 
element. So day one, you they settle you down. Day two, there's no mess around. They come in with this very heavy duty chemo, and that's going to turn you into a shell over the next two or three days. It's killing all your bone marrow, killing all your defenses, killing everything. You are literally nothing now. You're just an empty shell. And that's when it starts to get hairy. Um, you've got no defenses. The slightest bit of contamination will make you sick. Um, you're feeling sick. Your nauseousness is off the scale. You can't eat. You can barely drink. Unfortunately, people do pass during this process or have done. A couple of days for everything to die in my body. And then they put the, my own stem cells back into me. And then you just have to wait. You have to wait for the stem cell to take the bone marrow to grow back. And you get enough bodily defences that you're safe to leave the hospital. Obviously, during that period, it's not good. You're sick. You can't eat. You're nauseated beyond belief. How long does that take? It's a three-week process. Christine tells me I'm wrong, but I remember the first time I did it, I didn't have too many issues. The first one was a breeze, basically. You've done the first one. They discharge you. And what, you're, that's it? You're fine for a bit? Yeah. So the idea is now they monitor me. And this was the longest response I had from anything. So after that first one, I think I had about two and a half years of remission. I lived a normal life. At this point, your boys still don't know what's happening? No. And how old are they now? So they'd be eight and ten. And still, you didn't want to worry them, you didn't want to burden them, and the plan was to get through this and tell them in the future? Yeah, give them a jolly little story when they're older. Because I was in remission for two years anyway. I was working, I was going along, I was doing whatever we do, the holidays, going out, usual stuff we will do. But you always know at the back of your mind that at some point it's going to run out, that, that time you've got from yeah, the bone marrow. I do a bit when it comes. And when that was coming to an end, what were the first signs where you thought, this is my end of part one of this cycle? You start to get a few pains again. Things in the back and the bones start to creak again. I think at my peak then I was down to three-month tests, so I was living the dream of not going in every, every week. And then we did a scan. And, that, and that's when it showed up. The lesions in the bones showed up. They knew it was active again. I think because I was so set in me that you've just got to own it. Once you own it, it's yours. How did Christine react? Probably not so well. I often think it's harder for those that haven't got the disease to deal with because they don't know how to deal with it. They don't know what to do. There's nothing they can do either. They're very helpless. So this was very upsetting for Christine. I had a conversation once, they, very early days, they, uh, they said I should go and see a psychotherapy to a session just to check that I was all right. So fine, yeah, I'll do that. <clears throat> and I had an hour with her and she said, don't think I can help you. You kind of know where you are. But would you like me to contact your wife? Because I think she could do some help. Because obviously it's really hard for her to cope with this. And at this stage, your mother and father were both alive, weren't they? Yes. And how did they cope to having their young son having this de devastating diagnosis? They did all right. There's not as little they could do either. You told me once that your father had mentioned that if he could take it away and have it himself, he would. He would. Now, that was my father got lung cancer. And it was at that point... The only way he could deal with it 
was he felt that him having the cancer was taking some away from me. It was his coping mechanism. And which I can understand, he felt if I could take this for you now, and this is for me to take, you'll never get it back and it won't come to you again. So I'm taking your pain type of thing. Which is a, it's a lovely thought, but we know that's not true in reality. There's amazing comfort for him. Yeah, it was for him. It really worked for him. Until I shattered it when I said I'd race you to the grave. <laughs> <laughs> I can't begin to knowing But then I know it's growing strong Wasn't the spring And spring became the summer Who'd have believed you'd come along Touching hands Reaching out Touching me Touching me 